0: know what i think is one of the coolest parts well okay cool nerdy cool is that we got to see the episode of forensic files 2 before like everyone except the people who were like making it
1: oh that was one of my favorite parts because i was like afterwards like am i allowed to tell anyone about this i mean i can't talk to anyone about it other than the people in this room who saw it because no one else seen it yet but (laughs) what are the rules
0: and also i love how it was this like total legit movie theater with like popcorn and we got a little water and we were like in the front too like yeah. right right there big screen also you know and someone made this comment how interesting it was also to watch forensic files on the big screen this is something yeah. i'm used to watching in like a hotel yes let's be honest
1: <laughs> i mean yeah
0: but it just literally was such an unforgettable experience
1: Yes, that I still keep asking myself, I'm like, was that was that real? Did that actually happen? Like, how how were we invited by HLN to go to the world premiere of Forensic Files 2? What? Mind
0: blown. Mind blown. Yes. Well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
1: And I'm Tyler. And we are um and, as we kind of mentioned last week how we just got back from New York, um we're just still mind blown
0: still so mind blown and honestly, it's so cool to, again to that cool my night, my nightly word, word of the night, to be able to have another crime show to look forward to um or well science show, as they called it, but every week,
1: oh same, and it's one that forensic files to me is just the perfect format for binging. Because I like true crime documentaries yes. and all that stuff, but getting into something like The Staircase, that's a really interesting documentary, but it's like 10 parts or six parts, and it's it's a long, and it's one thing. It's just a big undertaking, which is why, for me, a lot of the long-form documentaries like that, they take a while for me to actually watch, but something yeah. Forensic Files, where it's 30-minute episodes that... You just look up seven hours later and you're like, oh, my God, I know all the crimes.
0: Pretty much. Um, So as y'all know, Forensic Files 2 is back. I'm pretty sure anyone who listens to this podcast is fully aware of that. But we, you know, like Ty said, we just got back from New York not too long ago. And so we just want to share our experience with you guys. It was something that, thanks to you, we are able to do this. And- we I mean, without all of your support and love, this would have never happened, so thank you yes, <laughs> um but oh my gosh, we got to see the it was actually episode two of forensic files. we saw that um and then we there was a q and a and then a reception afterwards and yeah, what a phenomenal experience
1: it was just such a great time to not only uh. You know, meet with other people in the true crime community, but specifically other people doing these true crime podcasts, you know, be able to talk about how they started and some of their insights and struggles. And it, it was just awesome. And also there was free wine at the reception, which is always a good thing for us.
0: Um. absolutely and we spent a good majority of the reception talking to Jess and Russ from Wife of Crime so if you haven't checked out that podcast definitely hop on over and give them a listen they are they were so much fun like literally like Tyler was just saying being able to talk to another podcast duo about what it's like being a podcaster you know podcast first World problems. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but literally, it was just so fun. And then, like, talking about different cases and different whatever. And we were literally in the same room as Bill Camp and then forgot to go say hi. So we definitely missed that opportunity.
1: Yes. But I mean, Jess and Russ, they're like some of my favorite people. And I. I just love being able to have these normal looking and sounding conversations. And then if you actually listen in, it's like, oh, we're talking about people getting decapitated.
0: Yep, yeah, or nearly. Um, yeah. But literally, <laughs> such a fantastic time. So I want to go back and talk about Bill Camp a little bit more because he's someone that you may have heard of. He is in The Joker, The Outsider, The Night Of. He plays a lot of these like detective and procedural roles.
1: What was what was the thing the guy said? He does a lot of the like slamming his fist on the table like, where
0: is she? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> they said that. it was really funny. Um, but yeah, so Bill Camp is someone that even if, even if his name isn't familiar, you've probably seen something with him in it. And he was taking over for Peter Thomas, who did the voice of Forensic Files for years and uh, passed away in 2016. And so he had like giant shoes to fill. And it's a voice that literally we all know, like, you know, the Forensic yeah. Files voice. And Say what you will, there is some controversy going around. I think Bill Camp did amazing. I really think his voiceover—you know—I was engaged in the story. I followed along. I'm all about Bill Camp. I thought I thought it was great.
1: To me, one of the like hallmarks of a successful narrator is that it just feels a part of it. It doesn't feel like an additional thing on top of it that's giving you these mm-hmm. in- this information. It just, honestly, a narrator. I feel like at the end of it is something you don't even think about because you got I the agree. information and it felt seamless. And by that, I'm like, nah, it's perfect.
0: Yeah, it was wonderful. And I just, again, like I said, thank you all so much for helping us get to this point to where we get to go do stuff like this and get to share this with you.
1: Yes, y'all are literally the ones who make our journey possible, who make all these amazing opportunities possible. And just, I mean, God, looking back, we've been doing this now for almost two years. um, Yeah. Basically like, I don't know, 21 months now. And just to see how we went from starting at my kitchen table um, in my old apartment, you know, talking into an iPad to having the opportunity to go to events like this in new york and it is absolutely 100 percent all because of you guys
0: yeah and so obviously today's topic we're gonna be talking about forensic files too and cases from forensic files too because you know what we're just gonna keep this ball rolling and celebrate everything forensic files so this is a science episode
1: (laughs) science episode (laughs) Essentially, this episode is uh, your ninth grade chemistry class,
0: but fun. I guess ninth grade you know, chemistry was
1: fun. Mine was not, but um, <laughs> okay. But well. yes, um, so we're doing cases from Forensic Files from the very first two episodes, which you can watch um, if you didn't catch them live. You can watch them on the HLN app or the CNN Go app, I believe.
0: Yes, and also HLN is re-showing them, like, all the time. You know how every time you turn on HLN and Forensic Files is on? I mean, it's still very much true. So yes. definitely, if you didn't watch it when it was live, you totally still can, but it does air on Sundays. So if you're wanting to see the new episodes as they come out, like, that's that's when to plug in. That's not the yeah. right phrase. Flip on the television.
1: Just Just tune in. But, um, and yeah, they do two episodes every week, two new episodes. So you get double crime, an hour of forensic files. And again, like I mentioned earlier, I just feel like 30 minutes is the perfect amount because somehow they're able to cram all of the detail and everything you could want to know about the case. And it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel like there's things that are missing. And you're just like, okay, but what's next? And then you look up in the sunset and all the lights in the house are still off because when you started watching it, it was daytime and (laughs) yeah.
0: Literally so true. But before we get into those cases, we're going to get into some wine.
1: Yes, we are. And in this episode, because everything's just special right now, we're doing the same wine for once in a while. It's been a while since we've done the same one.
0: Uh huh. It's been a long time since we've had the same bottle of wine, and uh, this not this did not just happen by chance. We planned it. Obviously, we got these. Uh, um, (laughs) We got this wine when we were together, and just thought this would be the perfect episode to split the same bottle. Um, So these were a little bit more than we normally spend on wine, but you know what? Why the hell not? Sometimes, sometimes you just gotta buy that fancier bottle.
1: True. And this is the 2018 Grace Note Pinot Noir from Carneros and Napa Valley, California. And it was 35 a bottle, something like that.
0: Yeah, thereabouts. So, so like I said, definitely a little bit more than we do spend. But definitely
1: pricier, but I think in the perfect uh range of like, ooh, I'm buying an expensive like wine, but not not feeling like if you want to buy a expensive wine or like a gift wine that you have to go into the 100 or something. Totally. If I'm buying wine for someone, my ass is always staying like 35 and below.
0: Yeah, generally mine is more of like a 25 and below range. Um yeah. love y'all peeps. So we picked a Pinot Noir and this is one we don't do too terribly often, but this one with being partially from Napa, um Napa Pinot Noirs are definitely different than those in Oregon. And so we wanted to just do something a little bit special, but not super crazy. Like we wanted Mm -hmm. to pick up a wine that we could both, I don't know, just really just talk about how we feel about it. (laughs) Our wine feelings. I don't know what I'm saying right now.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's one of those that I feel like if we'd done a Chardonnay Obviously, you're going to love it. If we did a Sauvignon Blanc, obviously, I'm going to love it. I like that we're doing a Pinot Noir because it's something that both of us enjoy, but it's neither of ours' favorite wines by default, so I feel like we're going to actually be able to have, I don't know, real opinions on it, if that makes
0: sense. Totally. So Pinot Noirs are generally lighter in color. They're a little bit lighter of a red. And this wine in particular has different aromas of bright red cherry, strawberry, and blackberry. And then some savory notes of sage, spice, and roasted mushrooms.
1: Yum. And I will say, if you are someone who is new to wine or you think you really don't like red wine, you're a white wine drinker, Pinot Noir is the absolute perfect red wine to try. Because it's much lighter, um, it's an easier drinking one, and it really gives you a lot of the complexities and flavor profiles of what a red wine is without Mm -hmm. being so bold and so heavy um, that it might turn off someone who's not used to drinking uh, red wines.
0: Said very well. I totally agree. And, you know, this one, um, it's also got a really great structure to it for Pinot Noir. The acidity that it does have provides, like, a really nice nice crisp finish. Um, but the flavors are really those ripe red fruits and the darker brambly notes. Um, and it's just... It pairs with a lot of different things. Like Ty is saying, with this being kind of like your quote-unquote intro to red wine, then you really can have this with a hamburger or a pizza or, hell, have it with some chicken alfredo if you want. It's going to go phenomenally Mm -hmm. with any of those.
1: Well, it's one of those wines that if you're ever stuck on the like, oh, I need to pair my wine with my food or I don't know, and you just have no idea what to pick. A Pinot Noir is a great one because with it being light, it's not going to overpower lighter dishes, but with it still being a red, it still has the ability to stand up to some heavier foods. So to me, it is like the perfect base level wine.
0: Totally. Um. You know what I just realized? We're basically going to have like a race to whoever gets it open quicker. I feel like we just both need to get into our wines and pour them now.
1: I absolutely agree. Well, I think I'm going to win because oh. uh, there we go. Wow.
0: Okay. You definitely won because I, I'm using one of those like restaurant keys. And for some reason with these, I'm not as fast. Maybe it's because I never did serving. So I'm, I I I'm not used probably you done it. <laughs> yeah. Got it.
1: All right.
0: Pour in time.
1: It's like the color of cherry juice. I don't even think I've ever had cherry juice, but I feel like it's this color.
0: Do people mm. drink cherry juice? Sure. Is that a I juice buy at the store? I don't know. Listeners, so you do you drink
1: cherry juice? I'm sure. I think so.
0: I don't know. I love cherries. Mm. You know, like, in the summertime when you go to the grocery store and get, like, a bag of cherries, and they're just so good.
1: Yes, and you sit there and eat a whole ass bag, and then you look up, and you just have, a, like, a mound of pits in front of you, and you're like, I just did the...
0: And you've kind of got a little bit of, like, this red ring around your mouth and, like, red hands because they stain. It's a cherry.
1: Listen, though, it's not as bad as when you devour pomegranates like you're a fucking monster. And then you look (laughs) in the mirror and you're just, like, drenched in your face. You have, like, the carcasses of pomegranates surrounding you. Maybe I eat pomegranates like a monster is what I'm realizing by your face.
0: I think you do, because I literally just, if you kind of use some water, you can get the seeds out, and then you just got a bowl of seeds, and you just eat them.
1: Oh, yeah, no, that is not what I do. I open them, and then just, like, put my face into it, and, like, that's directly disgusting. into my face. Why?
0: I don't know. You probably eat parts you're not supposed to eat, but are you ready to cheers? Because I really want to try this wine.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm ready to Cheers.
0: Okay, well, um, here's to New York, baby. To New York. All right, cheers. (laughs) Cheers. That's pretty deep for Pinot Noir.
1: Oh wow, yeah, it is. And honestly, I'm not getting as much of the fruit as I I expected. More of the. I'm definitely getting bramble. I don't know what the fuck a bramble tastes like. A stick about I mean, chewing I think
0: on a so. twig yeah um, are you drink are you drinking twig juice tea so yeah that's leaf juice
1: that's true um but no this is good it definitely is quite a bit deeper than i was expecting i'm getting a lot of those more like earthy minerally tastes
0: me too and i'm trying to see roasted mushroom mushrooms sage and spice is what it said on the back and Yeah, I get it. It's very earthy.
1: But But I guess when I think roasted mushrooms, I think like umami and savory. And that's not, I don't get that. Like, I just like, like, I don't understand. Like, it's like not my fault.
0: (laughs) Don't I hate that?
1: (laughs) Wow, that was rude. (laughs) You just stopped everything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Okay, well, fuck me, I guess. Um, but no, I mean, I. Th- this is a good Pinot Noir, but to me, it definitely. I don't know. I would put it more in line with like a medium bodied cab if I was just guessing outright.
0: I would not guess Pinot Noir if this if I was doing a blind taste test, as I do. Um, All I the would time. never, <laughs> I would never guess Pinot Noir. It's too um, deep and bold. I guess, mm. I mean, medium. It's medium bold, but like we were talking about, and like the description was telling us, is that it was going to be like very um, fruit flavors. And so I'm, I'm wondering honestly if as it breathes a little bit more and opens up, if we're going to get a little bit more of that fruit.
1: Maybe because in in my um, I'm saying in my mind, yes, but <laughs> on my palate, I'm getting almost like a distinct lack of sweetness that almost leans like a tiny bit like acidic, bitter, almost like yes. back of the tongue when you swallow like um like a pecan shell kind of flavor.
0: I feel like you always say that, and it always makes me wonder, like, why you chew on pecan shells. But Listen, okay. it's just because that's how
1: grandma <laughs> me described what bitter was when I was like six, and I was like, "What's that mean?" And that was she was like, "Well, it's like chewing on a pecan shell," and so that's what bitter means in my mind. I don't think I've ever eaten a pecan shell, still, <laughs> but um, oh, but oh it gosh. has that like. I don't want to say astringent, because it's not a harsh or like no, a No, it's not that harsh. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, a little bit of like a on the back of the tongue of bitter, which is just a really interesting balance that I feel like you don't get from a lot of wines. I'm into this one.
0: I like it a lot. I, I mean, you know, Pinot Noir is not something I gravitate towards automatically. It's a nice, like, treat, I guess. And this is a fantastic bottle. Mm. I'm... Really excited to be drinking it. I have been wanting a glass of wine for, like, days, and I'm glad it's in front of me.
1: I feel that. I um, have had this, and then I've had a, like, $3 sparkling, like, I think, fruit wine in my fridge that I think I'll be drinking next episode. So uh, tune in to hear that one. But... (laughs) I, I'm like, well, I'm not drinking either of these, so I guess I'll wait to record.
0: I think it sounds perfect. But um, okay, well, we have our wine.
1: We have our topic. And Brittany, why don't you tell me about your case?
0: All right. I will. I will, Tyler. You know, I will. Um, So one thing I did want to note, I obviously, the source I used was Forensic Files 2, 2020, Season 1, Episode 2, titled on the Rocks. And um, the executive producer of Forensic Files 2 is Nancy Duffy. And she just did such a phenomenal job. We got to hear her and Bill Camp uh, speak after we saw the episodes. And this is actually the episode that we saw during the premiere. And y'all, it was just... I I know it sounds so cheesy, but it was so exciting to be able to see this on the big screen. And then to talk about it with the people who made it immediately after. In a room of all of our podcast peers. Podcast, media, broadcast, true crime peers.
1: Well, and just the way it's done, it is the type of show that five seconds in, you're invested. It just pulls you in in a way that, to me, it's the kind of show that if you're watching it with friends, there's probably no talking and then commercial breaks, and you're like, okay, so let's let's discuss and break this down. Oh shit! Surely, shut up! It's back on.
0: Shut up or get out. You... <laughs> you don't say that to your friends when they talk.
1: <laughs> uh, sometimes.
0: <laughs> this, this is why I watch TV alone because it's like commercial talking is fine, but as soon as the program's back on, you just shut your fucking mouth because it's TV time. Maybe I yeah, need it... to stop watching TV. <laughs> Maybe it's why people
1: don't invite me to movies because uh, I'm you that talk. bitch. Who's like 20 minutes in, and I'm like, so is that guy the one who was in, um, what's that, Speed Racer? No, is it The Fast and the Furious, that one? And they're like, I shut the fuck up. I There's 25 things wrong in your seven-word sentence that I can't touch on right now. And that's, that's cool. Jessica Biel. She's been in <laughs> none of that. And I'm like, oh, okay, Seventh Heaven Girl, got it.
0: <laughs> oh my god. Um okay. So, but exactly. So I watch TV alone for that that uh cuz I can't watch TV with people like you.
1: I know. I I <laughs> accept what I do, which is why I just don't watch TV or movies.
0: I mean, that's fair. All right. You ready for me to like really hop on in now?
1: Hop away.
0: All right, because it like you were saying it just starts immediately. Boom. So 2 weeks before Christmas in 1995. In Salt Lake City, one of the patrolmen was called um, by a farmer. The patrolman's name was Todd Bonner, and the farmer was calling because he found a corpse by the water on his property. When Todd got there, um, I don't know if I should call him Todd. He's like a police officer. Mr. Bonner. Patrolman Bonner. Officer Captain Bonner. Officer. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> officer one? Bonner. Um, So Bonner gets this call, he goes, and when he finds the body, it's completely nude. It looks to be a female in her late teens, and she has been beaten to death and left beside the Provo River. The scene, as you can imagine, it was extremely graphic. You could tell that this victim fought back and suffered a lot. No conventional murder weapon was found um, around the body, but... There were six bloody rocks all around her of lots of different sizes. So it was really easy to deduce that that was probably what was used to end her life, which yeah. fucking
1: brutal. Yeah, rocks. I I don't know. It's just the kind of weapons that are I mean, I guess blunt usually, but irregular and ones that you know it's going to take a lot of that weapon to kill someone. It's not a gun that if you shoot them in the right place, they're dead. Or even a knife where if you stab them, they're probably going to die quickly. Like, you could bash someone's, like, shoulder with a rock and, like, they're not going to die. They're just going to be in a shit ton of pain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just have to. I guess you could also
1: shoot someone in the shoulder and, same, they're not going to die. I don't know. It's just, it's so brutal.
0: Yeah, it's it's all this brute force that is behind the use of these unconventional weapons. Yeah. And she also had a ton of defensive wounds. You could tell she's just really fighting for her life. Um, even the hides of pretty much all of her fingers had been removed. Just uh, think about holding up your hands to try to prevent that, that rock from hitting you, but it still comes. And rocks are rough. And so the hides of her fingers, uh, they were gone. One of the rocks actually looked like it had a bloody handprint on it. And because of the use of the rocks as the weapon, police could tell this was a crime of opportunity. Because the killer just used whatever was available at the scene and the nearest thing that they could grab. And clearly that was this, she was on a pile of rocks by the river. So that's what they grabbed. Yeah. Some of these rocks were even like the size of microwaves. I mean, they were huge. So that does a lot of damage. So the victim was very brutally and angrily killed and her clothes and her ID were missing. And aside from the rocks, there was nothing else at the scene, nothing for investigators to go on. The crime did appear to be sexually motivated, But later, after an autopsy, it was reported that there was no sexual assault, just an encounter. DNA was recovered from the rape kit, but at this time it was 1995, and so it's only been eight years since DNA was able to be analyzed and used to convict. So some of the smaller crime units, like this time in Utah, they were years away from using it. It was something that was just way too costly. And one of the really great points that they made is that there are a ton of forensic tools out there that are just too expensive or too limited to be used on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of these police units and, and their crime investigation offices, that's not what they're called, but whatever, they have a name. Forensics such as DNA at the time was completely out of reach for them. And so that wasn't even a factor.
1: It just blows my mind how many cases there are out there right now that the only barrier to justice is cost.
0: Money. I know. what Money is like the blockage for everything. The amount of money that gets in the way and like budgets, because that's another thing that we don't really talk about very often. Sometimes we'll give some officers a difficult time. We'll like kind of drag them through the mud for how they treated a case, but On the backside of that, it's budgets. Like, there's only a certain amount of resources that can be used. Resources, manpower, and time. And it's sad. Like, it's so sad because that is, it's a job. And thankfully, there are so many amazing law enforcement and investigatory people out there. Detectives. All these people who spend tons of time outside of actual working hours to get these cases solved but sometimes money is is something that hinders them from taking a step that would be really beneficial
1: absolutely
0: there was one other thing though that was found at the crime scene and it was one really strange clue right by her body and it showed that maybe she knew her killer there was a pair of socks that were neatly folded sitting on a rock next to her body it could have been done by her it could have been done by the killer And it looked like they were folded with care. So, number one, they were folded. They weren't just thrown and discarded. They were, like, picked up, folded. So that took an actual step and some time. And no one knows why. No one knows why those socks were like that. So, like I said, there was no ID on the victim, but she did have some distinctive tattoos. So they quickly took photos of this and released it to the media And not soon after, two men called to identify her. One was a Salt Lake City cab driver, and the other was the victim's boyfriend. Her boyfriend identified her as Tracy Marie Beslanowich, and they had moved from Spokane, Washington, to Salt Lake City just five months earlier. So Officer Bonner, he was the one that had the job of calling the victim's stepfather, something Uh. no one ever wants to do. He got that short straw. And so he's calling the stepfather in Washington. But then this is when the case takes another really bizarre turn. Bonner got on the phone with Tracy's stepfather. And as he's telling his, her stepfather what happened and that, you know, Hey, we've, we've found Tracy. She's deceased. He's like, no, that's impossible. Cause I just saw her. And they're like, no, you know, we have her body she's been dis. she's she's been murdered and he's like no she lives like two doors down and he literally while officer bonner is on the phone is like hang on just a second let me go check puts the phone down walks two doors down comes back and he's like yeah tracy's at home you have the wrong person and it's like what
1: yeah it's like we literally have this person like id'd by oh By her boyfriend. Yeah, by people that know.
0: What became pretty evident was that the victim was using a false name. She was using her younger sister's name. So this victim was actually Crystal Bislanovich. She was a 17-year-old sex worker who used the street name Baby Tracy, you know, maybe to evade the police or just to not use her real name. That was just her, her street name and yeah. she was the victim who I, had been murdered I,
1: I wonder if her sister was used to getting i don't know calls or something because if her little sister is tracy beslonovich then i mean spokane's a big city so i don't know
0: yeah but this is also 1995 she's not getting cell phone calls calls on her cell phone or anything that's not, not a thing. N-
1: true that's true okay
0: so crystal had a pretty troubled past her boyfriend, Chris, was actually her pimp. And they had been living and working together for multiple years. She was definitely the moneymaker in the relationship. But they were really desperate to leave this type of life. they It's not what they wanted to be doing. It was, um, you know, a job to make ends meet. But she was ready to not be doing it anymore. I mean, she yeah. was very young. She was 17. If she had been doing this for years... It breaks my heart to know when she started, when she felt like that was what she needed to do to um, make it in life. Yeah. So one of her friends was Karen Mathis, and she worked the same streets as Crystal, and she was absolutely shocked with Crystal's murder. The police who were trying to solve Crystal's case, they took this very personally. They really, you know, even though you're not supposed to take things personally when you're a police officer trying to solve a crime, but they really wanted to solve this murder of a woman who had gotten into a life she didn't want to be in because she felt like she had no other way to turn and no other way to support herself. Crystal and Chris, even though she worked very hard, had very little money, no car, and they were staying in a pretty sketchy motel. Crystal would work the same parts of the community. She never left like this same seven block radius and she was always on foot. So police were really puzzled for someone who had no access to a car, never left the seven block radius. How did her body end up nearly 50 miles from downtown Salt Lake city? Yeah. So of course their thoughts are immediately going to maybe she was kidnapped. Um, Maybe she was offered a ride, went along willingly. Maybe she was offered a lot of money. And so she was okay with driving out of her normal working area. And since Chris also had no access to a car, he quickly was eliminated as a suspect. But like I said, Chris was not the only person that called. There was the cab driver who called, and his name was Clarence Stonehawker, and people called him Stoney. He quickly. Okay. Yeah, he quickly rose on the suspect list. Um, He was one of Crystal's customers, and he admitted that he knew her. He would give her rides whenever she needed them. And at this time, he was 45 years old, married, and had children. And he worked at a high school. So he really had no history of violence. However, when detectives started to dive into his background a little bit more, this kind, like, family man image started to fade. He was known to a lot of the sex workers. Um, Cab drivers themselves were actually friends with a lot of the sex workers because they would often get them away from Sketchy John's or even the police. You know, they could just jump in the cab and they would drive off. Well, Clarence told the police that his relationship with Crystal, it went well beyond sex for money. So they were more than just friends because of what she did for a living. He told police that he wanted to marry her, that he was in love with her, and so if he couldn't have her, no one could. And so oh, this Oh no. Yeah, exactly. This was one of the things that it's like, no, dude, that's kind of um that's a major obsession. That's not love. That's yeah. that's not love.
1: Also, I'm like first off, never say or feel that about anyone. Uh but two why would you say that during a murder investigation?
0: So the question is then, you know, maybe he got really jealous of her job and and killed her.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that, ugh, I just, I hate him.
0: Another clue that could tie Clarence to the murder was the socks. And so back to these socks, the mysterious socks. Crystal would like to control her environment when she was working. And one of the ways that she did this was... By always leaving her socks on. And this was something that never changed. Her friends and her clients knew this. And since Clarence was a client, this was something he would have been aware of. And with the socks being folded with so much care, and with how much he was saying he was in love with her, it was really starting to make sense that maybe he was the one that killed her.
1: Yeah, that's a big fucking red flag.
0: But... At this time, Utah's crime lab still was not testing for DNA, but there were private labs that were doing it. So the police officers, like their unit, had to ask for a lot of their budget money, and they used $15,000 to test the DNA. So in 2008, these bloody rocks that had been sitting in storage since 1995 were sent to a private forensics lab for testing. So when you think about a rock, A rock is this big, rough, porous object. And so when you're swabbing it, you know, you're just kind of like swabbing the surface, swabbing the crevices, seeing what you can get. Through their swabbing, they did find a partial male DNA profile. And this was more evidence than they had ever had in this case for the last 15 years. So this was big. But since it was only a partial DNA They could not use CODIS. I mean, CODIS is the national DNA database, but they did have Clarence, and they could do a direct analysis with his DNA and see if the partial matched. Well, to their major surprise, it wasn't Clarence. The DNA on the rocks was not his.
1: God, it just takes them back to square one. Like, he was basically the only guy they have at this point. And this rules him out.
0: The only guy they had, the only evidence they really had in 15 years. And nope, not him. So, like you just said, they were literally back to square one. And the police were, they were really worried that Crystal's murder would not be solved. So when the case was at a standstill, forensic technology, however, kept moving forward. So advances are happening because, again, science, you know, it's how it works. And in... (laughs) <laughs> and in 2010, investigators learned about a new piece of DNA technology called MVAC. This technology wasn't even designed for crimes. It was designed to collect microbiological materials, um, like pathogens and stuff, off of foods. And so how it works is it works like a wet vac, where... Um, you know, kind of like a carpet cleaner, where it deposits like a solution and water, and then it sucks it all up. So essentially, it's like carpet cleaning a rock is what they did. So they,
1: they Stanley steamered the evidence.
0: It, absolutely, uh, minus the heat. Rug I Doctor. Probably... I think
1: Rug Doctor's the one I meant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're both carpet cleaners, but the steam would probably like damage any yeah, DNA yeah. they may find. Um, so. This process, it collects the DNA that could not be collected before, because like I mentioned earlier, a rock is a really porous and rough uh, surface objects. And so this gave them the ability to catch any DNA that may have soaked into the rocks and analysts were able to obtain over 40 times the amount that they needed for a standard DNA test. And at the same time, Finally, Utah's crime lab started using DNA. Analysts there tested the 15 year old sample from Crystal's rape kit and the DNA from The Rock, and they were a match. So then they used CODIS because now they had a full on DNA sample, it was was not a partial. And so they used CODIS and they found a previously unidentified man who lived in Florida. And this dude was someone completely new, completely random, like not even in the same area. Like, I mean, this case is happening in Utah and this dude's in Florida. This guy's name was Joseph Michael Simpson and he was 46 years old. And back in the 1980s, he served time for killing someone in a jealous rage over a woman. So he stabbed this guy over 13 times, left the knife in his body and he ran away and told police that, you know, he must have fallen on the knife. You know, uh, 13 times. <laughs> he had it coming. He
1: had it coming. Like, th- literally all I can think about is the fucking cell block tango. Bitch, that didn't even work on stage. That's not going to work in real life
0: this guy had apparently been on parole since April, 1995 when he was an airport shuttle driver and the route that he took took him right by the area where Crystal's body had been found. And so police theorized that he saw her walking. Maybe she actually knew him and she trusted him. And so she gets in the car, but You know, because this Invac technology was so new and the DNA from the rocks was so old, the investigators really wanted to make sure that Simpson was the killer and that their case was airtight. They didn't want to have any reasons for the defense to be able to argue against Simpson being the guy. So they followed Simpson around and then one day he discarded a cigarette and the police quickly grabbed it for testing. And, like, this is one of those things, I'm like, it's always the fucking cigarette.
1: (laughs) It's always the cigarette. I will say, this is one scene that I remember specifically from the episode that just stuck with me. Not for what it was, but because the way they, um, like, recreated it in the episode is they, like, picked the cigarette up and then they... We're holding it in the car, and it was, like, still lit and still smoking. And I'm like, bitch, put it out. Your car is going to smell awful now.
0: They're like, we got to get this to the lab immediately.
1: Also, I'm like, wow, this dude is an absolute asshole for, like, you know, dropping his used cigarette and not even putting it out. I know. that's You're going to burn down Florida.
0: Well, they tested the cigarette. And the DNA matched the cigarette, the rape kit and the rock and all his prior arrest. So that was when they had enough evidence and Simpson was arrested. So prosecutors theorized that Simpson um, frequented the sex workers there in Salt Lake city and that he and crystal had had prior encounters on the night of the murder. They think that he saw her picked her up and you know, she got in willingly because she knew him. They drove out of town ended up having consensual sex and after this something happened no one really knows what but simpson turned into like he he had this homicidal rage grabbed the rocks that were right next to crystal's body and next to him and and he just started to beat her to death nearly 20 years had passed he was completely in a different place, on no one's radar. But because of the amazing, like, MVAC being used for forensic technology, they caught this fucker.
1: He He thought he'd gotten away with it. He thought he was all clear, boom, bitch. No, you can't just fucking murder someone and think it's over.
0: And that's one thing that I do love about Forensic Files is it's always like these... Um, killers who think they got away with it, but it's like, you can't hide from forensics. Like, nope. that is some shit that you can't hide. Another really great point that they made in this episode was that when you have a new piece of forensic technology, generally the first time something like that is used is definitely going to be on your Hail Mary case. The case where everything has been done, and they're willing to just take a risk. And for the MVAC... Crystal's case was the Hail Mary case that was used. And, you know, this was, it it solved her case. The MVAC is now something that is used in a lot more cases. And in September 2016, Simpson was found guilty of aggravated murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. However, when it comes to the socks being folded, Simpson still refuses to explain it. He's never commented on it. So it's still a random mystery. And as for Todd Bonner, so Officer Bonner that we talked about, you know, he was the one that was first called and introduced into this case and found Crystal's body. This case was one he worked on for the majority of his career. And so solving it was absolutely a major highlight. Crystal had essentially lived in his home for nearly 20 years in the fact that she was always there in his thoughts. She was always there in conversation. You know, he would talk to his family about it and, You know, even though that's something that you're probably not supposed to do, everyone does it. That's very much human nature. When you're trying to solve a problem, you're going to talk through it. And so Crystal felt like she was a part of his family. And so not only was it a relief for him when her case was solved, but it was also a relief for, like, his entire family. Because they had all been wrapped up into this, into solving Crystal's murder. And there is at least one really good thing that came out of crystal's case and murder and the eventual you know it being solved her friend karen mathis i mentioned her earlier they worked together and when crystal was murdered it gave karen the the push she needed to completely turn her life around she decided that she no longer wanted to work on the streets that she wanted to do something different and she did that and she found just another way to make a living and honestly seeing that they were obviously somewhere we know sex workers are oftentimes victims and i do love in this case that it wasn't like she was never looked down upon for what she was doing crystal like it was her yeah. job it was what she was trying to do to make a living and the police officers were all so invested in solving her murder for nearly 20 years and yeah. And I also appreciate Forensic Files, too, for putting this as one of their first episodes because we have talked time and time again about sex workers being murdered and being like these faceless victims, the invisible victims, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times people don't know that they're even gone because they live a transient lifestyle. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't care. And that is so wrong on so many levels. It's
1: so fucked up, but but it happens.
0: It does, but the fact that Forensic Files 2 is using a case like this and bringing it to the forefront, you know, no one deserves to be murdered, no matter what. No matter what their yeah. job is, no matter even if no one likes them, like, it doesn't matter, no one deserves to be murdered. So, that is the case of Crystal Beslanovic, um, on the rocks, Forensic Files 2, episode 2. Shit, It's a really intense one, and, uh, Dude... I for-
1: mean, it's very intense, especially if you use the wine counter that we've never used before, where I have about a glass and a half left, and we're wow. not even halfway. So, uh you know, yeah.
0: I have a half a bottle left, which is generally about what I have at this point. Um But yeah, I... So, honestly... I I wouldn't say I got to cheat a little bit but um you had actually already heard my case cuz it's the episode that we saw together and yeah, talked about But it's
1: <laughs> but it has been a while and then it, like all the cases that um you do that sometimes I know more about them sometimes I know them just hearing it hearing you go into the story and stuff is a whole different experience and God.
0: Well, thank you. I'm glad it sounded different to you. Hey, everyone. My name is Jess, and I'm the co-host of a weekly true crime podcast called Wife of Crime. Every week, I tell my husband one of my favorite true crime stories, and he reacts to them. Sometimes I get mad at him. You're going to really regret all of this judginess that you're doing right now once I tell you this story, because you're being very judgmental. Obviously,
1: something bad's going to happen. She's making a lot of bad decisions.
0: Well, you're being very judgmental. Stop. And sometimes he makes really weird noises. Ah! Oh. He now thinks that he's an FBI profiler. Yeah. How no-
1: about that, rust profile profiler placebo oh. <laughs> effect?
0: But most of the time, he just has really funny color commentary.
1: Wow, so he's sitting in his human leather chair, eating fruity pebbles out of a skull. <laughs> You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts
0: and check us out on Instagram at wifeofcrimepod. Well, I want to hear about your case, it being the one that we don't know. or I mean, you know it now, obviously, but I don't. Yes. So why don't you just jump right in? You did the one that was the very first episode of Forensic Files in nine years. So tell me, yes. tell me about this case.
1: So, um, I did episode one, Brittany did episode two, at this point, they're on episode, I don't know, five and six or something like that, so if y'all have not caught Forensic Files yet, absolutely tune in every Sunday when it's on, when it's airing, if you're able to, and my case is the murder of Margaret Perk. And the sources I used, obviously Forensic Files 2, episode one, Buried Secrets, And then I also used an article from the Akron Beacon Journal by Ed Meyer.
0: Dude, I am so jealous you found an article because I searched high and low and I couldn't. Which, I mean, honestly, again, it goes to the fact that mine was a case of the murder of a sex worker and there may not have been a lot of articles written about it.
1: I think that's a big part. I will say, I think part of mine is because it was episode one, there was more press about like, Forensic Files is coming back, and the first episode focuses on this murder that happened in our town. The Akron Beacon Journal did quite a few articles uh, that were, you know, retelling the case or going back into it. But I did also, um, the article I used was from years before Forensic Files 2 was a thing, so... So Margaret Perk, she met her husband Scott when they were in high school, and by the spring of 1985, they'd been married for about three years. And they were just the kind of couple that everyone was like, oh, that's Margaret and Scott. You know, (laughs) the high school sweethearts that that couple, that they just seem like they have a bright future, and they're I don't know, not even to the point where it's like, oh, they're the golden, like, goal couple. It's just they're this married couple doing their shit that you would never even think twice about shit going down. Yeah. And uh, they lived in and around, like, Akron, Ohio. That was where basically all of um, Margaret's family lived in the area. The two of them uh, had a house there in Akron. Scott, he worked as a security guard, and Margaret, she was a writer. And at this point in the spring of 85, she was very pregnant with their first child. Like, nine months pregnant kind of thing.
0: Like, it's Um, almost time. Any minute.
1: Yeah. Like, it's one of those. She is already, I guess not Google Maps because it's 1985, but, I don't know, road Atlas, Like, okay, this is how we get to the hospital if my water breaks. Yep. Or I guess you just know roads. I don't know. I don't go anywhere without using ways nowadays, but that's beside the point. Um, and she was the kind of person that all she talked about was how excited she was to be a mom, how excited she was to be pregnant. One of those people that you'd be like, did you find everything in the store okay? And they'd be like, okay, so I'm pregnant. And you're like, didn't answer my question, but all right. Like that kind of thing where it was literally the most joyous part of her life. And this was actually really good news to her family and a little different and kind of unexpected. Previously, she had suffered some bouts of really severe depression. Uh, One time she had even threatened and I think attempted to hang herself with the uh, cord on like window blinds. So... You know her joy about being a new mom. This kind of kind of new lease on life she had for herself with it was just amazing, and it it felt like to her friends and family that you know she she had discovered uh, meaning that she was looking for. She was just genuinely hopeful and excited about being a mom
0: and happy. She sounded like she yeah. was extremely happy, and she according to her family, like had this very dark past. And so it is very enlightening to see uh, so much hope.
1: Then on March 18th of 1985, just a few weeks, like two weeks before the baby was due, everything changed. So Scott was upstairs. They have like a two-story apartment. He's upstairs taking a bath. And he sees Margaret kind of like out of the corner of his eye walk past the door a few times. And he's like, well, that's kinda weird. Um, and then like five minutes later, he gets out of the bath, walks out, and he sees that Margaret had strung a rope from the second floor banister and jumped and hung herself from the stairs.
0: Oh my god.
1: So he runs down, he cuts her free. But unfortunately, a few hours later, she passed away, and the baby also did not survive.
0: Oh my god, he lost them both.
1: He lost them both, and everyone, friends, family, police, literally everyone is confused. Because literally her thing has been how excited how she is to be a mother. Like, there's no warning signs. It wasn't even one of those where... Uh, People that are having suicidal thoughts have, like, you know, a moment of clarity when they've decided or anything like that. It was just this sudden thing and unexpected. And just her demeanor before and this, that wasn't the only weird thing. When the first responders and police got there, they were looking there. They thought there just had to be more, but no one knew anything, really. They had her body and the evidence... And they had Scott's witness um, account. That was it. And so with all the information that was available and counting the fact that previously she had attempted suicide, her death was ruled a suicide by the uh, coroner. But friends, family, police, they did not agree with that. But unfortunately, because of that being the official ruling, the police really didn't have any other option than to stand by it. But... Her family did not give up. Like, every single year after it, um, they tried to get the case reopened, reached out to the police, but their hands were tied.
0: I mean, yeah, like you just said, the police had no options to investigate something that's been officially closed, like, by the ME. They're like, no, is suicide.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is not... If there was another piece of evidence that was uncovered or something, maybe. But... They couldn't just reopen it. Even though it sounds like a lot of them wish they could.
0: It sounds like a lot of them never wanted to close it in the first place.
1: Exactly. Years, and unfortunately decades, start going by. In that time, Scott moved on. And strangely enough, though, I put strangely in air quotes, uh, shit seemed to kind of follow him wherever he went. So... In March of 2009, there was a fire at Scott's house that he had with uh, his current wife at the time. Uh, he lived there with his two teenage daughters and his wife, and the house catches on fire. And so they call police, and they're like, the house is burning down. Thankfully, though, the entire family was able to escape. They were unharmed. And that was because Scott had apparently woken up at like 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom He smelled smoke, or he saw the fire or something, and so he woke everyone up and was like, get the fuck out of the house. So Uh everyone was okay, but the house burned down. But it burned down very quickly. Like, too quickly. Like, suspiciously quickly.
0: Like, accelerant quickly?
1: Like, investigators found a trail of gasoline outside leading up to the house kinda quickly.
0: Okay, why would you whoever okay um obviously this sounds like arson because yeah. people don't just have gasoline trailing into their homes but why I mean you don't No I do That's don't. how I
1: find my way home in the dark
0: by sniffing walk Um but yeah. like literally why would anyone assume they could get away with something like that they always find accelerants That's like
1: for real? one of
0: the first things they look for
1: I am not giving advice or telling anyone to do anything. I should probably be careful about these comments. But I've always thought, if you're gonna, like, I don't know, burn down a house, wouldn't you just, like, if you were, you know, someone in it, knock over a candle? Oh no, it's next to the papers. Or something like that, that could be, like, realistic. Or if you're, I don't know, outside, like, gonna burn down someone else's home, like, I don't know, fuck with the wiring outside or something. I'm like cuz the second you used uh, a an accelerant, I almost said a propellerant, whatever. Um that's obvious.
0: Well, and I mean, like, don't
1: burn down homes, but
0: No, don't do it. Um but like, so I lived in an apartment one time and our upstairs catty corner neighbors apartment caught fire, which literally one of the scariest things ever because the oh, all the smoke uh, alarms are going off we're freaking out. oh i'm sorry we were upstairs it wasn't catty corner it was across the hall so our neighbors across the hall their apartment catches fire we have to evacuate grab the pets i'm obviously having a. i'm like freaking out and crying and screaming because y'all i have, i bet you didn't know it but i don't handle stress very well um but we went outside Brittany does not handle
1: disaster well
0: <laughs> we were outside sitting in the car like waiting the to- police officers the fire trucks are all there so the reason i'm even talking about this what happened is there was a candle they had lit in the apartment and it accidentally got knocked off the counter into the trash can that had paper and like it caught on fire and thankfully there wasn't too too much damage i mean they had to move out but their neighbors below the their fire sprinklers came on and it ruined everything oh. So I have two comments to this story, and then I'll let you get back into your case. One, this is why they say don't light candles in apartments. Obviously, I'm guilty. I light candles in my apartment. But this is why you shouldn't, because it's not just your home you're risking. Number two, this is why (laughs) renter's insurance is so important. And I know at least here in Texas, you can't rent an apartment without it. But for that family that lost everything, like, you know, at least they had insurance. Like, you can't you cannot get back your things but you have yeah. to remember they are just things but it's very difficult but at least if you have insurance you can get new things like yeah because like for example i feel like if something were to happen here we have all of our like podcasting equipment that'd be a lot
1: we'd have to go on a little sudden hiatus <laughs> <laughs>
0: um fires are really scary And I know our mom has like a fireproof bag that has all of her important documents in it. And I swear to God, I need to fucking get one because literally Mm -hmm. um, someone put that in my stocking next year. I need a fireproof bag to put all my documents. I guess I'll put it
1: in your stocking next year (laughs) since you're literally only talking to me.
0: People listen. Um, Uh, Okay, that's true. But I'm just saying like fires are one thing that's really scary to me because they really... I think when it comes down to it, to be totally honest, I remember growing up thinking you had to have, like, your, like, go bag, like, your fire bag, like, what are the things I'm going to grab when I'm running out of the burning building? The truth of the matter is, you grab the things that are alive, like your family and your pets, and you just get out.
1: Yeah. The only time I've ever dealt with any kind of fire, and it's not, but I didn't know that at the time, is when I was at my uh, studio in Seattle, it was like... Five in the morning. It was, of course, a work morning. Because this shit doesn't happen on the weekends when you have time. Um, Fire alarms start going off. Woke me up. Max is freaking out because they're loud as shit. And so I just grab him, put on clothes, go downstairs. And that's I got to meet all my neighbors. Um, But we are like, sitting outside, like, standing outside in the sidewalk. Just waiting. Fire trucks get there. And I don't know what's wrong with me, but I handle, I guess, disaster type stress very well. Where it just is in my mind, kind of a mild annoyance. Um, Brittany can speak to that. It's very um, true.
0: He's more just like eye roll. Like, okay, can we get this over with?
1: Like, all right, the tornado took the roof off, but like we're fine. So can, can we? Can like, I go back to bed, crying or whatever? <laughs> My bedroom still has partial roof. I'll just move the mattress under there. Uh, no. But turns out what had happened is someone had um, burned toast in their apartment. And then instead of opening their window to, like, waft it out, they opened their, like, door to the hallway of the apartment. And the way... It was a newer apartment building. And they had, like, air pressure systems or whatever to, like... If there's actually a fire, the air pressure, like, sucks the smoke up. But because of that, it sucked all the smoke out of the apartment and into, like, the fire alarms So everything went off. It was ridiculous. But, um, I mean, it was just mildly annoying.
0: I mean, that is, though, because think about being that person that burnt fucking toast. And you're like, sorry, everyone. Sorry, firefighters.
1: (laughs) If you burn toast so badly that... You have to evacuate an entire apartment building. <laughs> like, I get it. We're not all great cooks. You know, eat, eat the just eat it as bread. Buttered bread toast. is still great.
0: <laughs> you don't need <laughs> toast. You
1: don't deserve toast. <laughs> you don't. You don't get toast. Um, but yeah, no fires are scary. Um, I don't have a go bag because I just I I have Max and my phone and the cats.
0: Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't have one now. I I don't have a my back crack's filled of all the things I would take. I I put my laptop in there every day. No 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 I I really wow. don't. There's nothing that I would grab. And this is coming from someone who has no fire bag. So I'm telling you, I would let like all of my like social security cards, driver's license, credit cards, debit card, all that would burn. And I would just be like, I'm not dead. And honestly, I would okay one with that.
1: cat under e- I would one cat <laughs> under each arm, and then I would use my dad voice on Max, and so he would stay right beside me and just walk.
0: He would even would do like the go Anyways,
1: Anyways, uh, long fire tangent uh, that actually kind of kind of goes into uh, a little bit later because so yes, like we said, obvious with the accelerant trails and everything. The police are like, this is fucking arson. And so they ask Scott, they're like, is there anyone that you know that would want to hurt y'all or kill y'all? Like, the fuck? And he's like, actually, my wife and I have an open relationship. And, uh, you know, we both have short and long-term relationships with some of the same, some of the different men and women. So maybe it's like a scorned lover type of thing. What? And police are just like, okay, that's... All right, you know, that's that's cool that both of y'all are into that, lots of people. All right. They're um, like, "Scott,
0: that's bullshit, but okay."
1: I mean, there's like that's a lot of information, but sure, I guess let's look at all of y'all's scorn lovers. Um, I mean, nothing against people that are in polyamorous relationships, yeah. especially if both of y'all are into it and that's y'all's thing, that's you do awesome. You. But the police were just like, "That's not really what we we're asking, but okay." So they start looking into everyone and doing, like, background checks, and they look into Scott's past, and they're like, oh, oh, your past is surprising. So it turns out he was actually an ex-con, and he even had a name that the local media had dubbed him. He was called the Ninja Burglar.
0: Wait, when was he a con? When did he do the ninja burgling? What does that
1: mean? Uh, After... Margaret's death before the house fire. Oh. Uh, that's, that's his little crime time. Um, and he had apparently committed more than 10 burglaries. Uh, he broke into houses, cars, etc. And he did all of that while dressed up as a ninja, which is stupid. He's stupid. (laughs) That's fucking dumb. Did you go to Party City and, like, buy a Halloween costume and be like, I'm gonna use this? You're an idiot. Don't be the fucking (laughs) ninja burglar. Are you goddamn kidding me? Are you gonna go get another costume and be like, I'm the Wonder Woman burglar?
0: (laughs) Wow. That was a tangent, but I 100% agree. Um, And by tangent, I mean rant. That was a fucking rant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was.
1: Um... And he deserves all of it. Because he would usually break into the homes of single women. He would rob them. And, like, car keys. All the shit he'd take. And then he would go through their underwear drawers and take their underwear as, like, his trophy. And that's fucking gross. First off, that is such an invasion of privacy on every fucking level. Second off, it's people's underwear. Like... I
0: know. Ew! That's seriously so fucked up. Like, literally breaking into someone's house to steal their underwear. There are so many, like, literally, why the actual fuck would you do that?
1: So, Scott wound up serving about seven years in prison for these burglaries. And all of the burglaries and stuff started just a few months after Margaret's death. Another thing that really caught police attention, and this is kind of the main... Not even a red flag. It's like a fucking maroon or purple flag at this point. I don't know if you can get redder than a red flag. But black flag. You know what? Yeah, it was a black flag. Yeah. And it was something that Scott told them the night of the house fire. So mm-hmm. literally, he is standing outside with the police. His house is burning down in front of them. And he just randomly, like, leans over to this cop and starts telling them, he's like, yeah. You know, I used to be married in the 80s, uh, but my wife killed herself when she was nine months pregnant. And Why? they're like, um, okay. Like, it was just so random, unprompted. No one was asking him anything. And it was just, it, it stuck to their minds how random it was and how weird it was that his wife and kids just escaped a house fire. They're over here. He's watching his home burn down, and he's suddenly talking about his ex-wife who killed him herself. And it wasn't even like, a, oh, you know, I know how to deal with stress. This is something I've been through before. There was no lead. It was just this thing.
0: It's almost like he was literally just, like, bragging, like, oh, yeah, bad shit follows me around.
1: Basically. um, But it was so weird to the investigators, and they were so confused about it that they were just like we're we need to start kind of looking into his past like i think one of oh. them was quoted as saying like in their 20 years of service they had never heard something this just like off the cuff out of the blue and weird yeah. and so it was just like no we need to like hitch on to that they actually found out that like years before scott's home like his previous house had also caught fire and then they discovered that with this most recent fire um in 2009 scott had for quote unquote some reason he'd previously like loaded down their car with all of their important possessions so like photo albums like family cookbooks clothes he just moved them into the car
0: that's not um, something you randomly do unless you're like moving
1: yeah or like i don't know taking a trip to visit relatives like there was no reason it's like oh he moved all of the irreplaceable things into the car and then the house burned down that's not suspicious in any way and then they discovered that he was about two hundred thousand dollars in debt and that's when everything kind of started to fall into place
0: all right that is.
1: this is an insurance like scam bullshit burning down the house
0: that's bullshit. Also, like, come on, dude. Like, yeah, it's a lot of money, but like, God, what did he oh, do? Don't burn your house down. Clearly, what this sounds for, like.
1: For real, and there, there's another and then that oh. is the most fucking ridiculous that they discovered. So while he was making the nine one one call about the fire, um, he's talking to the operator. He's like, "Yo, my house on fire. I heard an explosion," and the 911 one operators it was funny because in the episode they were like oh really okay yeah we're sending people down they were like (laughs) whatevs it's a fire they're like we hear this all day every day but then right after this you can hear him i think assuming that the operator can't hear him so he like leans over and whispers to his wife he's like oh god you forgot the ferret what literally it was planned they had planned to get all of the important things out, like, to get the kids out and everything. And he was telling his wife, like, th- they each had their duties of, like, what to get, what to grab, what to do. And I guess his wife forgot the ferret, their family pet. Um, the ferret did wind up dying in the house. Um, which is sad. Ferrets are precious. But it just literally on the phone with the police... He's making an inadvertent confession to the fact that this was so planned out.
0: You know, if he would have just changed his tone and said something like, oh my God, the ferret. Because that'd be a totally yeah. different thing. But like, yeah. you forgot the ferret. It's like, I'm sorry. Was As you were running out of the house while it's burning, were you supposed to... Did you yell at me mm-hmm. to grab the ferret and I forgot? Instead of our, our son... You know what? This is one of those things. Inflection is important, people. It changes the sentence completely. Just like commas.
1: Yes. Very true.
0: Let's eat grandma and let's eat grandma. Two very different sentences with very different outcomes.
1: True. Plus one. Plus a thousand. So at this point, the police have enough and they're like, all right, we're moving in to arrest him for the fire. But they still want to know more about Margaret's death. And so, because of all this shit, they're finding out about Scott and his past, the shit he's doing. Her death was officially reopened.
0: Oh my god! I bet and, her family was so happy after years and years, because they yeah,
1: they're finally maybe going to be able to find something new, even if it's not Scott, even if that's just the catalyst that opened this. This is their opportunity to learn more.
0: Yeah, and this is something they had been wondering, like, or in they like they never thought she committed suicide. So they're like, yes, Mm -hmm. finally.
1: Something, yeah. So in September of 2011, investigators exhumed Margaret's body and performed a second autopsy. And at this same time, Scott is arrested for the arson. And during his arrest, one of the detectives was like, oh, and by the way, we're looking into Margaret's death, too. We just exhumed her. He knew he was fucked. They were, like, all of the color drained out of his face. He, like, completely stopped responding to everything. He knew he was fucked.
0: Well, and that reaction alone is showing that there is something for them to find.
1: Yeah. So investigators began looking at the previous autopsy report. They looked at Scott's testimony that she'd hung herself from the stair banister um, and then jumped from the second floor and then they also looked at the evidence they could see on her exhumed body and they went into a lot of detail about um like how uh embalming can really preserve you so even though it's been 30 years pretty much looks the same oh my um, god
0: are you serious
1: yeah like all of the marks that were on her body are still there still very clearly visible like it doesn't stop um the decomp process, but it slows it down so much that apparently there may have been like a flood or something. But her uh, casket was like half filled with water, and they were still able to see everything.
0: Did the water and like help preserve her or hinder the preservation? I
1: would, I would assume that they didn't say either way, but I would assume water would make decomp faster. Me too. Um, but they were still able to see everything and it didn't add up they went into a lot of uh detail on how rope markings on the neck look different when you hang yourself you know you're gonna have rope markings that like on the back of your neck end in like an upward v like an upside down v or like an a shape because of like the downward pressure and all that yeah but when someone's strangled it's like a more like a collar shaped mark There's no upward because someone being strangled. And the marks on her body did not look like she'd been hung. Another thing Scott said when he got out of the tub and saw her, that he immediately cut her down. And remember, he saw her walk past the door and then he's like five minutes later is when he found her and cut her down. In his timeline, if she had hung herself the second she got out of his eyesight, there'd only be about five minutes there. Also, um, how the but- fuck
0: did he not hear her? If she jumped off the banister, how would he not hear
1: that? Exactly. Like, That's
0: not a quiet and if action. If you could see her
1: walk past the door and you're in the tub, that means you- the door's open. Yeah. Yeah, I do not understand that either. But the marks on her body and stuff, they weren't even the marks from rope. Because rope is very, like, rough. So if someone hangs themselves or is even strangled with rope, you know, you can kind of see the twisted form on it or the rough marks. The marks on her neck were smooth, like oh. she'd been strangled with something like a belt. And again, she didn't have the backwards V on the back of her neck. Right. So they were looking it looked like she was strangled, not hung and not even by a rope. And then there was also this mark on her chest. Like this, what looked like a rope burn mark across her upper chest. Like um, above her breast, below her armpits kind of thing. That was oh. unexplained in the original autopsy. But when they looked into it, they realized what it was. And it was that after she'd been strangled, probably in their bedroom with the belt, he wasn't able to drag her over to the stairs. So he tied a rope around her upper body and pulled her and dragged her to the stairs
0: oh my god and that
1: was where the mark came from
0: that's very interesting that when you think about it things leave marks on your body and whether or not it's a mark that you really see but like when i'm just assuming i'm not a scientist but i feel like when you die those marks become permanent like that bruising doesn't go away like It stays there because your body's not healing. And so I feel like there's almost like more of an imprint.
1: Well, that's exactly right. That's what one of the uh, scientists that interviewed said was that, you know, when you die and there's a mark, you stop healing. So it's there. And so even 30 years later, when she was exhumed, the mark's still there. It never healed or went away.
0: Oh, my God. Well, and if, like you said, it horrifies me, but embalming hadn't, or it like... Um, decreases the speed of decomp then holy crap yeah there was still so much that they could see
1: so in january of 2014 scott was charged with murder and with tampering of evidence and investigators and the prosecutors they were actually able to go back to the very same apartment where Margaret had been killed. What? And they were able to run tests and scenarios to see what happened. Because the banister that she had allegedly hung herself from was still there. They had not updated the banisters in 30 years. The same? The original one was there. Which also, I'm like, I do need to update that fucking apartment Like, one. Come on, Akron. But,
0: update your apartment.
1: I mean, regardless of it just being old. Like, if someone died on that, change it. But... I mean, thankfully they didn't because they were able to run exact tests. And when they staged a simulation with a mannequin, the force of someone jumping from the second floor with a rope tied to the banister, it left a very deep rope mark in the wood. Okay. Like it didn't break it. Yeah, wood is hard, but think about when you're hammering something and there's a hammer mark left in the wood. With this, when they ran the test, it left a deep rope, like, I don't know, squeeze mark yeah. on the banister.
0: Honestly, that is one of the things I was thinking of, of how how the banister even was still standing and wouldn't break. I would think of that force from the jump. I would feel like it would break the banister completely to where it almost would be impossible to to hang yourself from that type of structure. But... I didn't even think about the groove. Like, obviously, yeah, mm-hmm. your hammer, that was that's a perfect example because you can make a hammer mark in wood by barely any force. So obviously, yeah. a rope is going to have a lot of... is That's going to make an indention.
1: So when they did the test with the mannequin, it left the indention. There was never one there from when she hung herself. And what that means is not only did she not jump or anything, she was never hung from it. The rope that was put around her neck and, like, oh, he cut her from? She never actually was hung from there. He staged all of that after strangling it. his pregnant wife.
0: Oh my god, what a fuck.
1: So, in November of 2015, Scott was found guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Um, And he won't be eligible for parole until he's, like, 80-something. Uh, And I cannot imagine he will get parole. But he never revealed why he murdered margaret um there's theories that wasn't ready to be a father or some bullshit like that
0: that's total bullshit not that this is a good thing to do but uh just leave
1: that's exactly what i was gonna say i'm like never would i give advice to leave your partner but um don't murder them
0: like no don't murder them don't murder your child just leave if you can't handle it then you can't handle it
1: handle being a parent don't be in a relationship or you know Uh, maybe make that up front i I don't think he's obvious garbage trash Mm -hmm. uh but he never revealed why and to this day his motives are still not known jeez and that is the murder of margaret perk
0: we have a lot to analyze here i believe
1: we do we do um i guess do we want to just uh jump straight into postmortem
0: yes i think we do I kind of think it was yours because, I mean, when you think of how many steps had to be taken for the resolution, I mean, they had to exhume her body and discover him. And also he had like the stupid ferret comment, which just like totally got him caught. However, sorry, I stumble on my words a bit because the topic of this episode is Forensic Files 2. So I actually think maybe more than our intensity lens, we need to look at these cases at a li- with a lens of, um, which was the more forensically intense. And if we do that...
1: You know, I am... I'm going to disagree with your reasoning because, yes, uh, you know, our topic is forensic files too, but we always do focus on the intensity. However, on the forensic lens... I think absolutely yours because if they had never decided to use this random FDA water vacuum technology and put it in this context that it wasn't meant for, but it worked for, they would have never found this guy. He was never on their radar. He was someone who was in another state. He was never viewed, but I still want to view this through the lens of what's the more intense case. And in that vein, I'm still going to go with yours because I think the brutality of the murder, I think the time it took, how much she fought back, she fought back to the point where her fingers were ripped to the bone from protecting herself against these rocks. Yeah. Not from clawing anything or using her fingers, just from shielding herself. Her fingers were worn to the bone. I, I think the brutality of your case, I think yours was the more intense case in this one
0: well and i will agree with the fact that when you hear about rocks of all sizes in my head i think of like okay one i could hold with my fist one that takes a couple hands Mm -hmm. but then you hear about the rock that's the size of a microwave you're like holy shit what did he do with that rock he clearly had to pick that up and bring it down upon her and that that is brutal
1: to me this is Super graphic. But to me, in my mind, that's the type of rock that you could just literally drop on someone. Yeah. And it kills them. And the fact that she fought and didn't just die and stuff and how long it took and the intensity of it. Yeah. I mean, my case was very intense. She was finally, for one of the first times in her life, truly happy. Yes. She had this husband she loved. She was about to be a mother. And then the love of her life, she thinks, strangles her because he's a little bitch boy and is like, I'm not ready to be a dad. Well, you know, then get a divorce.
0: Honestly, that's what I- drives me the most crazy about your case is that we don't really know why he did it. The like dad thing is an assumption. It's a fair assumption. It totally makes mm-hmm. sense. But I'm like, dude, why did you kill your wife and your unborn child?
1: I mean, but the same in your case. We don't know why. Yeah. We don't know why he killed her, why he took her socks off to fold them. Was it to kind of have the power over her, like, you never remove these, I'm removing them? Was that kind of sadistic? Yeah. Was there a horrifying, like, I'm in love with you, I get to do this kind of angle? We have no idea. And we won't ever know, because the only person that knows is in jail right now. And that's true for both of our cases, and they're not talking.
0: Well... One thing I do love about forensic files cases is they are, for the most part, solved. Um, I actually don't think mm-hmm. I've ever seen an episode where they're not solved because I think that's the whole point of how forensics solves the case, and that yeah. is one thing that I think is a shining beacon of light at the end of this for this episode, where it's like at least these co- these cases, they're solved.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, how many times have we done cases that are? crazy intense and horrifying and it ends with and nobody's been arrested
0: exactly
1: it ends with a big question mark and by no means are there not question marks for our cases i think that's another thing forensic files does really well is you have a conclusion but it draws you in and you want to learn more you want to pause the tv open your laptop and be like okay I'm going to look up Margaret Perk. I'm going to read and just see what more I can find. But at the end of the episode, it doesn't feel incomplete.
0: Agreed. All right. <sighs> you can pick our topic for next week. And um, yeah, I think this was a really great episode. And again, like such a phenomenal experience. One we're never going to forget. Like, whoa.
1: Um. And again, I I can't say it enough, but... The The experience for me was absolutely life-changing, and I can't mention enough how much it would not have happened without the support and love that we get from you guys every single day. Yeah. Every time y'all listen to the episodes, leave us a comment, a review. It's, it blows my mind how much this has grown and how much this has impacted us, but also impacts all of y'all. Yeah. And I just fucking love you guys.
0: I love you guys, too. And one thing I want y'all to know, you know, sometimes, like, we're human. (laughs) Sometimes we have really shitty days. And when I come home from work and I, like, pop on Instagram and we have, like, this super, like, nice message. Or even just, like, a comment where someone just talks about something. It just, there are so many times when that can just uplift my entire day and i'm like you know what today was really rough at work i've had a really hard day but you know this person enjoys what i'm doing like this person appreciates what we're trying to bring to the true crime sphere and or or they just said something really nice. We actually got a comment one time where someone told me they loved my lipstick. And it was, Tyler, it's actually one you got me. It's the really light pink that I was a little bit nervous about wearing because I didn't know if I could pull it off. And this person was like, I love your lipstick. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to fucking wear this now. And I guess what I'm getting at is sometimes people do like very small things. And even if it's just like a single comment or or something, that can mean a lot to someone in their day and i've I've transitioned from like us to just like universal because there's just so much um strength in kindness
1: absolutely
0: well, aside from forensic files too and the phenomenal experience that we had with h l n and meeting other podcasters, um what was your favorite part in New York?
1: Um. So this is going to be very specific, Um, but it is definitely a tie between just the view of the city. I'm an architecture slut through and through. Love me some Art Deco. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Love me um, some new modern architecture. And just seeing it all there in the city, seeing the Empire State Building, seeing uh, the One World Trade Center, seeing the Chrysler Building, which is my favorite building in the world. I loved it. The other piece was, um, this will make sense to people who get it. Um, I passed a kidney stone in New York because of fucking course I did. (laughs) But the fact that, first off, I had no pain or didn't even notice or think about it during the premiere. And also, when it got to its worst, it was like a three and a half out of ten. And then I, surprise, passed it. Y'all, that that was amazing because oh i God. was terrified i it was going through my head i was like holy shit we're in new york for three days and either i'm gonna have to have Brittany take me to the hospital in manhattan or she's gonna have to go to this event without me and i'm not gonna be able to experience it with her or whatever and that that didn't didn't happen didn't even come close to happening was pretty awesome
0: I definitely had a fear. Not that I would have to take you to the hospital, but that I was gonna have to go to the event alone, which just shows you like how much anxiety I have as a human being. Um, because I was like, if I have to take you to the hospital, like that's not a good situation, but like we got it, we can handle it. Me having to go <laughs> to a taking network... <laughs> my sibling to
1: the hospital, whatever. Going no. to an event by myself. No. no, I get it though.
0: Because at the hospital <laughs> we would have been together, like it would have been fine. Not the first time that has happened, but at the <laughs> yeah, event.
1: This, this ain't our first rodeo. The,
0: yeah. The event would have been an experience that, number one, I would feel not great doing alone because it's not just me. Like, I wasn't the one that was invited. It was both of us. But also, I just don't like being alone in networking events. And you know what? Yeah. It's just a fact of life.
1: Well, I mean, it's something that everything we've done with the podcast everything we've been through with it has been the two of us yes i know i could never have done a half a percent of what we've done without you and just the idea of doing anything that big solo or that i'm like no that doesn't make sense it literally it's the two of us through and through
0: i totally agree
1: so um, the two of us and all of y'all. Cause <laughs> I mean, as much work and stuff that Brittany and I both put into this, the words and the work that y'all put in. I know I sound like a broken record. I've said it a trillion times, and I will never stop saying it, but we could not do this without y'all, and we would never want to do this without y'all.
0: That's true. Um well I feel like it's awkward for me to answer the question I asked you. Oh, after I am all of that. so sorry.
1: I feel like I railroaded your answer.
0: It's okay, because mine is bagels. <laughs> I love the bagels, which I do. But um actually yes. for me it's a tie between two things that are very different than yours, but I also did not have the experience you were going through. Um one was our first night with the amazing hotel rooftop bar that we went to with my friends. Oh. Like, yes. not oh only God, was yes. it honestly for me, and this is a bit like personal to me, but I've I've lived in New York. There are so many people I love in that city and getting to, to see them, we were there for a really quick trip and we were able to make the time for me to see some of the closest people to me. And that was so important. So all of those moments, you know, the coffee shop, going to Brooklyn, being on the rooftop, um you know, our generous guests who let us stay with them was so yes. amazing. And and then also, to be honest, one of the small things that was my favorite is when we found that little restaurant in Little Italy and just had the like the prettiest charcuterie I've ever seen.
1: Uh We'll post the picture to Instagram. We definitely because... will.
0: Um, and the restaurant had like the bistro chairs that just like steal my heart away. Tyler knows how much I love um, bistro chairs and the bottle of wine. And then that was what we did right before the Forensic Files premiere. And so it was like this amazing thing where we were having this like peaceful time and then had to be like, oh, fuck, we have to go. And that's OK. Like it it didn't ruin the experience. It was like, OK, time for the next really exciting thing. So,
1: Yeah oh
0: i love new york there's no place like it for you guys that live there i'm jealous of y'all every day
1: (laughs) i'm so fucking jealous i Like,
0: like i love i love being here in dallas and i think for me for like a place to settle down it's perfect but new york will always hold a special place in my heart
1: see i could absolutely settle down in manhattan
0: please do so i can come see you
1: okay well as soon as i get a job in new york i will let you know and you can come stay in my studio
0: sounds like a plan i'll sleep on the floor in a pallet
1: perfect (laughs) i'll also be sleeping on the floor in a pallet (laughs) (laughs) but um thank you guys all so much for tuning in um y'all are absolutely incredible and this is blood and wine signing off
0: xoxo bye you guys
1: Bye.